Hey there, it's Ben. I'm giving a shout out to those who have been giving us feedback and getting the word out about our recent episodes. While editing, I've been loving the discussions and I'm really happy that everyone has been liking them as much as I have. I also want to give a shout out to a, a new Patreon backer, Clement Covemaker. If you want to be like them, you can at patreon.com slash the Hydean Way. Thank you and now on to the show. I grip the comlink, probably a little harder than I need to, as I feel sweat beating on my brow. Listen, kid, that's over a kilo of military-grade explosive you've got in front of you, and I know you said you know how to disarm it, but you'll pardon me for having more regard for my own skin than to just take your word for it. I turn to Ben. Hopeful he knows how to talk this kid through whatever needs to happen to keep the whole ship from going up in flames. Okay. You see the warhead there? It's the cylinder-looking thing with the big middle screw at the bottom. Now, I want you to unscrew the bottom cap counterclockwise and pull it out gently. There'll be two wires going back into the rest of it. You need to cut the black wire with the yellow stripe, not the blue wire with the white stripe. I cover the mic and turn to Christine and shrug. Did the kids say it was Imperial Mank, or is this some scavenged piece of Clone War tech? Because I'm pretty sure the yellow striped wire triggers the detonator on those old bombs. Welcome to an explosive tale from the Hydean Way, where your hosts, Christine Chester, Ben Yendel, and David Pickering. I haven't had a chance to, to play in an RPG since last time I was on Tales, but something I've been doing is character creation, both for an upcoming game I get to play in, as well as helping other people make their characters. The interesting angle that's come up is, how does somebody become x career x specialization how do they get there what's their background what's their story that leads up there if you're playing a thief what route led you there was it just necessity a matter of survival did you grow up in a big city planet or out on the boonies or was it more a challenge thing did you have a mentor or are you self-taught like these little questions that really can go could be applied to a variety of the different careers and specializations. You know, we've talked about session zeros and stuff on the show, and I'm, I'm wholly in favor of doing those. But I think even before you get to a session zero, if you have some idea of what kind of character class you want to play or character specialization you want to play, I think it's easy enough to just assume sort of like, oh, you know, I'm a brand new character. I'm just falling into this career because this is the archetype I want to be. But <laughs> if a character, let's say, is a gadgeteer or a bounty hunter, like, yeah, let's say the character is a gadgeteer. Like, there's a road to get there. You don't just start off. You don't leave your house one day and suddenly <laughs> learn how to like jury rig all sorts of armor and weapons and gadgetry together. You know, there's some character development that's happened to that point. Especially because, at least in the the Edge rulebook, it mentions a lot of bounty hunters need a license from the Empire. There's not a whole lot of freelance bounty hunting that the Empire is okay True. with. So the majority of you have gone to essentially bounty hunter. You know certification of some form you know how did that come about there's a lot to, to just go into even that just off the top of my head and something else interesting especially for specializations like the gadgeteer that have kind of more than one like primary focus if you take two or three gadgeteers they're not going to be the same they're not going to have arrived at the same <laughs> place at the same way it could be one guy really focused on that coercion and bought intimidating as his first talent. And he used to be kind of this like muscle for this one guy. It could be somebody who was really good with the mechanics and with the tinkering, 
and sort of fell into having to pick up the combat side out of necessity. You know, that, that somebody who could have been a mechanic had their life taken a different course. Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. Mm. I like that. I also like that in uh, specifically the Gadgeteer, you've got the ability to have then the armor master style, where these are the people who are almost interchangeable with their armor. A little bit of an homage to the original concept behind Boba Fett, mm -hmm. where you've got the person who has extra amounts of gadgets in their armor because, well, that's what Mandalorians and that's what Boba Fett did. And especially in contrast to, let's say, other fighter types, you might have a marauder in the party who doesn't need any gadgets. She just needs the largest <laughs> weapon to go smack somebody with. And, you know, the gadgeteer is in a different place off of that and how those oh, two yes. can interact, even if they're both primary combat <laughs> characters. <laughs> It can say a lot about them, and you know if you're you're playing your gadgeteer, like what was your first your first suit of armor like? You know how did you arrive at that? What tweaks did you make? Or if you are playing a class that doesn't have a lot of toys like that, how did you learn to do what you do? How much damage is the Marauder taken before the campaign even begins? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's not as easy as it sounds to hit someone up close no. with something. They usually do things like get out of the way or you know, block it. It's not... Especially in the Star Wars universe. You're the person yes. who grabs that baton or sword or whatever, or vibroaxe, as opposed to using a blaster like everybody else. In a world of guns, you're the guy that reached for a stick. Yeah. Well, to be fair, though, stick. the amount of long-range combat isn't exactly huge. A street tough is still going to be effective with a large sword or a large club. Or a large axe. I mean, there's a reason why Gamorreans are effective guards. Yes. Yeah, that's true. They do a lot of damage, and they can survive a lot. Like, the reason why the Marauder specialization is so feared by GMs is not the amount of damage it puts out. It's the amount of damage it can absorb. Every single specialization, every character has a reason why they're there. And this is a point where we bring out the old saw of, you don't need pages upon pages of backstory to figure out why your character's there if you're starting off at zero experience beyond character creation. Mm -hmm. That's interesting things for you to figure out going forward. But having a few ideas of, like what Christine and David are talking about, of I had something big in my background where I learned to pick up that fibro axe and started to become a tough, to become that marauder. Mm -hmm. There may have been an incident that you know about that it may not be completely, utterly fleshed out, but having the idea of I was protecting my kid brother when we were growing up on the street, and that's the reason why I became a marauder, because I can then protect them by going after everyone, or that could be the reason why the character became a bodyguard. And like you're saying, it doesn't have to be pages and pages of backstory, it could be as simple as an event or a past profession. Like for heroes, while I wrote a longer backstory for Nima because I'm me, I can it can really just be boiled down to she was a Coruscant cop, she lost her fiancé, she's mad at the Empire. And that still informs a lot about who that character is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it tells you a lot more than it sounds like on the surface because it tells you 
you know, that, <laughs> for example, she is the kind of person who places a lot of value on companionship, on relationships, because if she's out for, you know, galaxy spanning revenge, not even revenge, even, but just like she's willing to join a significant political organization, you know, a paramilitary group labeled terrorists by the prevailing government, you know, she's obviously placed a lot of weight on that, you know, mm-hmm. she's the kind of person who, I don't know, I, I just think that there's a lot of unspoken information that you can learn from just a basic, like, why are you doing what you're doing? Right. Uh, yeah. When I'm building up NPCs or when I'm, yeah, when I'm building up NPCs or even when I'm building up player characters, in the past, I hadn't been all that interested in the motivation end of making the character. I just didn't really care. I just put them all as the same if I was doing pre-mades, where I wasn't bothering to come up with the background. Mm-hmm. I think that's doing a huge disservice to the players. Mm-hmm. For every backer game, I need to make a bunch of NPCs. I know people keep offering, but I like making my own, just because. For the very first one, I made characters with an obligation. I actually did the full thing. I even had motivations on it. Excuse me. Even had a little directive with it. Not exactly a motivation, but this is what the characters wanted. Mm -hmm. And that in, especially considering we didn't get the entire group, that informed the entire play session. And it wasn't that long of a thing, like you said. It was just this, here's what your character's motivated by. Here's what you're trying to do. And with pre-gens, I really think you can take it either direction. You can, you know, make them relatively blank slate and let the players fill in details as they want, or you can have that extra directive. I personally like having that little bit of extra directive because it can cause little conflicts or things even early on for characters. If those ideas conflict in some way, or even it can just help give you a better idea. Oh, I know this person is, like you were using your example earlier, this person is a bodyguard because they used to protect their kid brother. Okay, well, there's definitely that view of things, that protection angle, that doesn't necessarily have to be applied from one character to another. One bodyguard could just be in it for the money. (laughs) And so that says something and can inform, okay, well, that's that's how this character is going to behave when we get into a situation. I'm going to look out for everybody else because that's what I do. Something else I've been finding interesting playing around with character creation the last few weeks is having some degree of contradiction in a character as well, where it doesn't, it can have to be a long backstory thing, but it could be, let's say your thief character really wanted to be actually this is probably a bad example they have piloting skill but like, let's say you really wanted to be a, a soldier or something but you have no combat ability whatsoever you went down this other path but that could be a direction you could take the character as you go along even though your career and spec are telling one story it could be why did you want to be a soldier why did you look to the empire maybe what was it about that career that inspired you even if you're something else that can still inform some of the the play maybe you're a thief who has a strong sense of honor that you know what it's okay for me to steal from so and so and so and so but i'm I'm gonna draw the line at service members or at somebody really in need and kind of through that that curveball <laughs> yeah i like that i yeah i don't think you should be afraid to limit yourself a little bit when you create a character like i think Especially with stuff like that, people are, I've 
you know, played with have been afraid to be like, oh, well, I don't want to create a character who wouldn't do something, obviously, like that might come up during the campaign. <laughs> and I don't think that that should be a limiting factor. You know, if your character wouldn't do something, that's an opportunity for role playing. That's not a hard limit on what you can and cannot do. Like, doesn't necessarily just because your character has like a code of honor that says, I don't want to steal from the poor doesn't mean that something couldn't push him to do it. And that would be a good role-playing moment because it's, you know, he's compromised his morals for something or, you know, or if she decided not to do it and therefore, you know, you, your party has to find another way to do something. It's a role-playing game. You know, there's always going to be other ways to get stuff done unless your GM is really railroading you. <laughs> Even if your GM is really railroading you, then having that conflict between what my character is wanting to do and doesn't want to do versus the way we then need to may not be quite as good of a role-playing situation, but it does still come up. Yeah, it's not what necessarily you might be able to get the most out of, but you can still work within it, and it still creates an opportunity to role-play. Well, anytime you have conflict. <laughs> Speaking of conflict, I was thinking about four sensitive characters in this time period that we've got the main game set in, and you have a lot to work with. Even if you're, if you're not playing a Force and Destiny class, if you just splash a little bit of Force sensitivity in from one of the edge or age books with that you've got a character who probably hasn't had the easiest life up until now or if maybe you've got a wealthier character who has had a fairly easy life the discovery of this force sensitivity that's a huge wrench in the works that's i don't know quite how to describe it but it's like growing into a persecuted class of citizen by mm -hmm. discovering that i guess the closest thing i can think of is like being an x-man like a mutant in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> like, everything's hunky-dory, and then one day you sprout angel wings out of the back, and suddenly you are persecuted. Well, that can be played with in so many different ways, especially if you are dropping a Force character into Edge or Age, or playing a kind of more, like, muted Force and Destiny campaign. The first question you have to even ask is, does your character know? Like, maybe your first gift is something like Sense, and you're just like, you know what, I'm, I'm a very empathic person. I, just, I know what people are feeling, but you don't think anything more of it. And so that's the first question. <laughs> and then you have the angle of, what do you think it is? Especially if you're playing the Galactic Civil War, most people don't really know what the Force is. Maybe, you th maybe your character thinks you just develop psychic powers, or maybe you're a pious character, and you think this is a gift bestowed upon you by your god. Uh, s spoilers for a Force and Destiny character I might want to one day play in Heroes on that. Um, <laughs> uh, we've got a lot of time for people to forget. <laughs> uh, but you can play around with that and and then as well as what kind of gift do you have? Are you... I keep going back to the, to the example because it's just on my mind right now, but if you're playing that Thief character and you have the move power, maybe you've used it a lot. Maybe you've gotten good with it. And you don't see anything wrong with it, and then something happened, and maybe that's even where your <laughs> obligation came from. Ooh, I like yeah, that. Nice. You can have it inform so many things. You know, maybe you were a mercenary soldier and you developed the heal power. You're able to patch people up on the battlefield, and that was a thing that occurred. Is it a curse then to you, or is it a gift? And if you are aware of, hey, if people see me with these abilities, I'm in trouble. When do you use what you can do? When do you hide it? How into self-preservation are you? Or do you feel the need to share it? Are there a few people that know or a lot? Like, There's so many angles you can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I've been watching Black Lightning on Netflix because that's what I get up here. 
as opposed to getting it on any useful channels. <laughs> One of the characters in it is just starting to come into having her own powers. And it really reminds me of some form of enhancer move in the way that a power set would be. I could definitely see this being the inciting incident of moving out into the galaxy as a whole. Like, How does she come into training for using her force powers? How does this work in such a charged environment? To me, it seems kind of interesting. The beautiful part is for a lot of the questions that it raises, you don't have to have answers when you create the character. Yes. <laughs> There's no rule that says you need to know everything your character is going to do or become at the beginning of the game. In fact, it's usually better if you don't. Yes, it's good to know some things about your character. Oh, yeah. But it's not a requirement that you know everything that your character ever will be. No, no. Like, even I tend to write a backstory and I go heavy in details at start. And even then, when I jump into a game, what I had in my head and what ends up coming out at the table are two completely different things. There's also different play styles. I've known people who they don't want to think about the background until they've been playing the character and then it clicks <laughs> along the way. Oh, this is why this person knows how to do this. Yeah. This is why they are this way. You can go back and fill in those details. I mean, that's honestly a lot of how TV shows do things, if you think about it. Like, most TV shows are not telling you everything about a character, and you can almost guarantee the writers don't know everything about the character. But then you have that one episode where they flash back, and they are, you know, or they meet someone from their past, and it explains something about their character. Mm -hmm. That's one of the huge things, is if you leave holes in your backstory, then it allows you to have those characters that come up that you didn't know about when you started. If you have a complete backstory when you start a character, then you're actually limiting both yours and your GM's ability to put interesting things in that are topical to the game that you're playing instead of the one that you wanted to write back when you start up the backstory. Mm -hmm. Two examples using the same actor. Hey, we haven't had a leverage reference in a while. <laughs> The first character that I'm coming up with is Elliot from Leverage. Do we know all the things that Elliot did in the past to cause him to want him redeem himself and put him onto initially the path of redemption and him being in the deep dark hole when we find him at the start of the series? No, we're never going to know that because it isn't important to the character as it is now. No, and that's also an example of a player having fun with a lot of those question marks especially in that first season how many times is elliot pulling out a new skill yeah <laughs> uh well one of the ones that i would almost call it a fate aspect more than anything else is especially in that first season it's something that's along the lines of a very distinctive and then yeah. dot 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 <laughs> because all he's doing is well it's a very distinctive fighting style it's a very distinctive gun it's a very distinctive watch like so many different things are very distinctive and that's the reason why he knows about it even when we first meet that character there's a few details we get early on and there's a couple of contradictory things we get early on <laughs> for example he's the fighter he's a very talented martial artist he doesn't kill people he doesn't like guns we don't get the answer but that's okay that's that's still a fact and it says a lot about who he is same thing when it first pops up him and cooking 
the fact that he's somebody who <laughs> creates and he will wreck you. <laughs> and we have that separation. And, and even if we don't know why or how we learn that, it can spawn different ideas, such as, you know, you start wondering, well, where, where did he learn how to do that? Is that something, you know, did that come first? Did that come did that come later after the martial arts training? We eventually do get answers for all that, but not for a long time. <laughs> and that was because a writer decided to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Where did the knife fighting come up with? Because it's in something close to like the second or third episode of the series as a whole of hold a knife like this to fight, hold a knife like this to cook. Like, it's just a weird throwaway thing for the character. And from there, you get depth. Or just, I'm going to continue on with the leverage reference for a moment because this just occurred to me as another example of something I was talking about. You know, we have Hardison at the beginning, very talented hacker or slicer for the <laughs> Star Wars equivalent. A trait of his that's established very early on is he wants to be a mastermind. He wants to be able to do Nate's job. Yes. He wants to be the one planning the jobs, running the jobs, knowing how to pull the jobs. Mm-hmm. But he also is so arrogant, he has no idea on how to pull him off without compromising everything. Yes. <laughs> and that would be a great mechanic, you know, a mechanic, but a great idea to start putting into your party, you know, your character party in the game. If you've got a character, maybe they want to learn a different skill than the one that they have. And that's sort of like, I think maybe it comes from the history of, of the way that parties develop culturally, like, you know, through D&D, &D, where it's like, if you learn skills that are outside of your area of expertise and you become more useless because you're cross-classing into things you don't need to and everyone has their job and they just do that thing. But people aren't really like that. So you could have a character who's there are the pilot, but they are really, really interested in the kinds of things that, say, the the diplomat's doing. You know, the, the politico. They're very interested in learning how to talk to people and, and be a peacemaker or be a rabble rouser or something like that. They don't want to fly ships forever, but they're good at it. They can develop skills, and that fits the, their character development. It also can create these wonderful moments between your PCs, such as, in that case, you have your politico and your pilot having these conversations about discourse and about how to be persuasive or negotiate a deal, and it's going to bring those two characters closer together. I've actually had something similar happen in my Sunday game. Our little Chandrathon merchant went to the big Mandalorian mercenary soldier for blaster lessons. Mm -hmm. He wanted to learn how to defend himself. And that's been, you know, that's been a whole thing. Those characters have had many conversations about it and gone out to the range and had these little cool role playing things. That adds a lot to a character. Like just, just that little tiny bit of role playing adds so much to the experience. And it can be something that's inherent within the character from day one, or it could be something that gets picked up along the way. Maybe, you know, you may not even realize that your pilot really wants to learn how to negotiate until they see the Politico doing it a few times, and then they go, oh, okay, this is something I've been missing. That I find a very interesting idea. The nice part is with the FFG system, you can do something along that lines. You can have a character that's built up to spread out. You can have that generalist. From a pure mechanical standpoint, when I'm taking a look at building a character, I'm always like, in the Genesis book, they actually dive heavy on this, but it's sort of been the 
supposed common wisdom since Edge of the Empire came out. And that's at character creation, dump all of your starting experience into characteristics because, well, that's the only time you can buy them cheap. Right. So if you come up with the idea of, I'm wanting to have this pilot who's also looking to become a sneak thief, for an example, then they would have their high agility because, well, they're a pilot, but then you'd also be putting some experience into being cunning as well. You'd have... Uh, four in agility and three in cunning. Or you're wanting to have this generalist who's good at piloting, good at sneaking, and kind of good at talking to people. So then you've got threes in agility, cunning, and presence. And just distributing the experience where the attributes get built up enough so that they become mechanically useful. Like, getting that three is a lot better than having that two. Yes, and the nice thing there is it also reflects a natural ability rather than a learned skill off the bat. You know, that character is inclined towards learning how to sneak better, for instance, even if they don't have a point in stealth yet, and that's something they're going to learn during play. I love the idea of characters who have more of a desire to learn things outside of their general area of expertise, because I do think that people tend to get siloed <laughs> and say like, oh, well, my character only knows how to do what he's good at. And he only wants to stick to what he's good at. And I don't think people really like that. I think, you know, there are some people who want to play to their strengths, but people have a variety of interests. And I think when you start branching out like that, you get a more believable person uh, as your character. Mm -hmm. You're right. It can be reflected in a variety of ways. Like, it doesn't need to be this, this big thing or even something you plan for from the start. <laughs> if your character is, you know, your, your two-presence soldier type, and something happens and you find you're the guy in charge, you're barking orders and having to direct people and be inspiring in some way, even if it's a temporary situation, maybe you put that point in leadership, even if it's not a career skill. You don't have to take it further than that. And maybe a yellow and a green isn't superb, but it can still you can still pass easy or even average checks with that and it can reflect something. Or it could be the start of something greater. Maybe then off of that you do cross spec into a commander spec or the mercenary soldier or something else that lets that become a career skill and then something you're going to build up over time. Because the beautiful thing is, even if you have a two characteristic, you put enough XP into a skill and it will become good. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so to circle back to leverage, because apparently this is also a leverage fanship, <laughs> I've got what Christine mentioned a little earlier about the Slicer character wanting to become a mastermind. And also, there was a fifth season that, in some ways, it was sort of, they were going out on top and trying to hand over to the next generation of thieves. Throughout the third, fourth, and fifth seasons, once the mastermind had went to jail... Because, well, they're thieves. Someone has to go to jail eventually, and they gotta do the jail story. I mean, it's like having a Star Trek and not doing a fight <laughs> story, apparently. As they slowly start to gain skills that they wouldn't normally have. Like, Leverage was its own Cortex system. I think you can still buy the actual PDFs of the system. There's actually been a lot of thought that went into this, and a lot of weird, geeky collaboration between the developers of the Cortex system, and the showrunners. It started off with everyone having a niche, and everyone having to be good at that niche. What this turns into is, I, th I think on TV Tropes, this is like the five-man band. Yeah, absolutely. Where you have 
people where you've got like the pilot, you've got the mechanic, you've got the talker, you've got the fighter. And in the leverage case, you've got the thief, the sneaker. So that's your five people. No one stays this, like David's saying, like Christine said. They're wanting to grow. You get enough experience in the Star Wars system, you're going to have to grow outside of that specialization. Mm -hmm. You can double down on it from the gadgeteer, take an assassin, and then just be this really good fighter at close in. And you've got all these really cool knickknacks on your armor. Because, well, that would just be cool. Or you can go some other way. I dream of having a researcher or a scientist on a campaign. And every single one of the backer game pre-maids, there is going to be something along those lines. You've piqued my interest. Um, why? What is it about that kind of archetype or those specs that calls to you? Is it just something you haven't really seen in play before? Yes. Hmm. It's that I just haven't seen a researcher in play. I haven't seen a scientist in play to be brought out as an actual character. Interesting. In every one of the Star Wars systems, there's one or two talent trees that just sort of seems to be at least deemed mechanically useless. The scientist and the researcher seem to be two relatively deemed useless ones because, well, they're really horrible at combat. Oh, but they're so good at everything else, though. <laughs> <laughs> they're bad at combat, they're bad at social situations, and they don't really do the mechanic stuff anywhere near as well as someone who's actually good at mechanics. That's not their... It's almost like actually taking the thief. I guess the scientists can do that, but that's not really their role. My very first edge character as a player was an archaeologist, which I had no technical skills. That wasn't my job. I was the knowledge person. <laughs> and that can be a lot of fun to have that at the ready, to be the person who has the answers or understands how how the galaxy works. It's Knowledge skills are a little more difficult to use, which I think is the other reason you don't see them come up and play very much. But it can be an incredibly fun spec to to play with, and especially to pair with something else. Like, in the case of my archaeologist, I might have eventually become the party face and picked up the scoundrel spec because <laughs> my poor little researcher who was just trying to understand a lot about other cultures ended up falling more into the underworld and had to learn how to interact with that and get by. <laughs> <laughs> but those knowledge skills were always something I could fall back on. Well, and yeah, knowledge education, that's the one that I keep going back to. Knowledge education I love on account of its knowledge bureaucracy. Yes. I swear in an edge adventure, especially a one-shot, I, I want to have one viable way of it essentially being, okay, yeah, you can have a character go to the DMV. With your knowledge education, you can bypass all this stuff and actually go to a wicket, get the information you need, and then go away. Or you can do all the other fun and exciting things and have other scenes, or just possible. You can have something interesting happen at one of these information booths. And then and then that begs all sorts of questions about where did you learn about bureaucracy? Because it's probably not an academic leaning at that point. It's probably something maybe you were an imperial employee. To get grants, as I'm pretty sure most of the PhDs who are listening 
and most of the other people who are dealing with government grants or just other grants, the amount of bureaucracy that goes into those is phenomenal. And this is why respected scholar is an important talent. Yeah, being able to do the research, being able to apply that. It is one of those things, if I haven't seen it, therefore I'm wanting to force people into playing it. Kind of like why I'm excited to be onboarding a thief in my Thursday night game. Mm -hmm. The interesting little backgrounds that you come from it. Like, taking a look at a scientist or a researcher. Why is a researcher in the Rebellion? What caused the researcher to take up with a terrorist organization? <laughs> yes. That's not a very common professional path. Or what is a scientist doing with all these edge characters? Like, really? And then there's other other things to flesh out there. While well, the scholar or the scientist may have access to most of the knowledge skills, what was your focus? Most people who have a PhD, you know, you don't have just a PhD. It's a PhD in something. You are a specialist in a certain field. Mm -hmm. You might have knowledge in other areas, but what was it about? What were you what were you working on? Did something happen to that research? Are you continuing to work on it now? Is your party going to walk into the <laughs> cargo bay and be like, hey, what is this thing over here? Oh, don't touch that. It's a very delicate experiment. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, oh. Considering education is education, I now you've got me thinking of, okay, Across the back of one of the cargo bays, you've got this entire chemistry <laughs> setup with beakers titrating into other things, and you've got this whole thing going on. And it's one of those things of, there is no way that anyone else is going to have a clue of what's going on. For all they know, you're making beer. They hope you're making beer. <laughs> you could be making beer. I mean, that would fit. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an interesting one, because that's probably the most... Like the really, I guess, our colonist specs, a lot of them are more of your everyman, like a a scholar. You could have just been a college kid or you were that scientist or whatever. And like you were saying with regards to joining the rebellion or joining a ship's crew, the how did you get there? What mm. kind of obligation does a character like that have? Like most pilots or thieves or, you know, the your scoundrelly types. Oh, they probably have a debt or they betrayed the wrong person. You kind of. There's stereotypes to obligation. I don't have a stereotype for a scholar character. Or, here's another good one. Why is a marshal out in with a bunch of thieves? <laughs> <laughs> in grand theory, this is a uh, upholder of the law. They're in with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells. At best, you've got a bounty hunter, which is a pretty dark side of law and order truth and and i i don't think that your average party of players is going to really have thought through those kind of relationships between people like if you have you know maybe you have like a, a politico a respected politician what are they doing <laughs> palling around with you know heavily armed mercenary marauders and outlawed mystic wizards and now i'm thinking about shepherd book from firefly yeah, I mean... Well, that's a pretty good one to think about. And as his line goes, I wasn't always a shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's one of the things that can be really fun with these characters, is that you can have a bit of a past, like Nima, 
or like AMP TV, whatever, where something did happen in the past, but it's only now that you've gone back to adventuring. Yeah, that something comes up. David, Christine, do you have any final bits of advice for our listeners about creating characters and creating character backgrounds? Kind of a final piece of advice on top of everything else. Um, if you're not really sure where to begin for like fleshing out a background of a Star Wars character, this is actually one time we're looking towards some other RPG systems might help to help you think about it in different ways. Like one of the things that spawned this topic was I made a character for a D&D 5e game where a background and parts of that are literal things in the game. And it can be a dramatically different thing from who the character is today. It's who you were or a game system like Star Trek Adventures that has the life path generation. It can help get you thinking about, okay, my character ends up here, but where did they, how did they get there? What are the steps along the way? And thinking a little bit more about the story that led up to it. I think when I come to thinking about character backgrounds, my first thought is usually that I want to have enough coming into it to build on. You know, I want to have a solid foundation. I want to know a little bit about my character, but I also want to leave enough open, especially if there's a session zero, that I can mesh that character into the party and to the setting and the world and, you know, whatever my GM has for me. So if I've got a character, I might come up with, you know, this is a, you know, a, a Force-sensitive character. He's just discovered his power. He was very wealthy before, and he's scared about this. And I'll know that going in. But I'm going to leave other things open so that I can figure out, like, where he lives and, you know, maybe what he's like or what, you know, I might even leave what species he is open in Star Wars and figure out <laughs> during Session Zero that that's what that's going to be. I guess my piece of advice was do do some homework, put your character together before you come into it and have some idea. But don't do too much to the point that your character is too rigid to easily fit in with the rest of the group. As a GM, that's always what I fear for the players coming to my table, is that they've got too rigid of a idea to fit in with the rest of the party. I've seen this happen a few times with players, and it just never seemed to work out, where it seemed like this one person was playing off on their own. My piece of advice is pretty much a mirror to David's. Leave holes. Leave holes in your backstory. Know about incidents, but not how they played out. So that you don't have a list of pre-built NPCs for your GM to come up with. If you're going to be having a sibling that you were protecting and you're now there as the hired gun bodyguard, leave the sibling a bit more nebulous, at least for right now, as you come to have an idea, then start forming it and work with your GM. As a GM, if you're coming up with cool ideas, leave it as a cliffhanger and then work with your players for trying to develop this idea. Any of these background things needs to be a collaboration between the GM and the player. The GM just because they're the one running the game and the player because, well, they're the ones who created a character. And anything that goes on affects both. Well, at least he grabbed the Bogwing before he brought the disarmed bomb inside. I mean, the little thing was just using it as a perch as it pecked at his helmet. I'm impressed he was able to get that Reformation-age Trandoshan explosive disarmed without either of them going boom. What sort of species does ultraviolet wire markings? Oh, it just goes to show that sometimes we don't know everything, I suppose. I just really wish we could learn these things in less life-or-death situations. Which is exactly why I intend to pick his brain while he's around. 
Did you hear the list of different manufacturers he rattled off? I could specialize in bomb disarmament and still only know a fraction. Join us next time on an educational tale from the Hydean Way. You can find show updates on Twitter at the Hydean Way, and you can find me at Twelfth Night. That's one two T H and Night with a K. I'm at AKA Agent Shades, and I'm at Deuterium Ice. We are all at thehydeanway.com, where you can find previous episodes, links to things we talk about on the show, and our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way. Our podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us. Drop us a holocom at tales at thehydeanway.com. We're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash thehydeanway. Or give us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thehydeanway.